you had a full schedule this weekend, didn't you? You took them to 180 weekend, which is a weekend where uh, a host church in Gaston County will serve uh, as a host church, as I said, for uh, all other churches. And they invite special speakers in. They have all types of activities. And other youth groups from the area come around and uh, are encouraged in God's word and discipled and brought along so that hopefully our teens can grow up, uh, you know, and just live out God's purpose for their lives and make their lives really count. And I just think it's awesome, man, the, the time and the energy that you spend with our students. I, I really am thankful for that in our churches, I know. Um, you know, I, I'm into leadership <clears throat> big time because it seems like those leadership principles just apply almost everywhere across the book. And uh, somebody told me one time, I think they were accurate, they said, uh, as to information, if you have good information, you can make good decisions. If you have no information, no information, it's a toss-up, right? You're weighing it all out, trying to figure out where you need to go, what you need to do. If you have good information, you can make good decisions. It, you, know, you, you have that possibility. If you have no information, it's just a toss-up. But listen, here's the important part. They said this, if you have bad information, you're going to make bad decisions. It's impossible to do otherwise. We understand that in business. We understand that in everyday life things. But I wonder sometimes if we understand the importance of, of that axiom in raising our children, in dealing with our husbands, dealing with our wives, dealing with our families. Um, I've been dealing with marriages, counseling, helping couples for about 27 years now. I've talked to dozens of of couples who loved one another and were there together and cared for one another enough to marry one another. Most of them weren't just overly enamored. They really, really, really thought they were the right one. They really thought they had found a life mate. And they were really willing to sacrifice, most of them. And yet they're sitting there now frustrated, defeated, messed up, struggling. I'm here to tell you, from personal experience, not by reading a book, but from personal experience, that one of the greatest destroyers of homes are people who have been given terrible advice. And as a result, because they had bad information, they, they have all kinds of misconceptions about what God, what our wives, what our husbands and what our children really want from us, what they really want from us, and respect from us. Now, now I want to say this. This is especially true with men. I don't know why it is. I don't know whether men just have such terrible models. Many of us, as our fathers, think about your dad, I'll think about mine. Some of you had really good examples. Men who openly expressed love to your mom, men who hugged you and and uh, held you and loved you and cared about you and put the family over other stuff. But some of us, the majority of us men, did not have that as our dads. We just didn't. And uh, so we wind up, what we do is, they don't teach us, sit down, teach us systematically. They just teach us by we watch how they act every day in the home. And because we got bad info, we have a lot of misconceptions. We make bad decisions about what God, 
what our children and our wives really, really, really want from us and, and what they really respect in our lives. Uh, our goal, uh, my goal today is to shoot very straight with you and to give you the right tools so that men, particularly you, you can be God's man, you can lead your family really, really well. I, I certainly am not a perfect example or even close to one, but I have tried through the years to learn a lot. Why? Because I was raised in a father, in a home where my father was absent. Uh, my father didn't teach me much at all, and then what he did teach me basically was wrong when he was there. And I know what it's like firsthand to miss the input of a good, loving father and also to have the input of a bad father. My dad was really never there for me or any of us kids. My dad really was a workaholic. That's what he was. He was when he was working, he was working like crazy. And then when he would come home, he would drink heavily. I think he's what you would call a functioning alcoholic, but I'm not sure I would even call that a functioning alcoholic. You know why we call it a functioning alcoholic? Because they're, a, they're living by the same lies. Our definitions of, of life are formed by the same lies that everybody says, well, if you're able to work and hold a job, then you're providing for your family. So you're a functioning alcoholic. But listen, everything at home was screwed up royally. I mean, Dad was cussing and raising cane and driving the car in the ditch and beating us and committing adultery on Mom at least six times but because he with six different women. But listen, because he could hold a job, he, he's a functioning alcoholic. No, he wasn't. He was a terribly dysfunctional father. I don't hate him. I don't hold any animosity. I was later able to lead my dad to the Lord. Thank God. My dad's in heaven now. But I'd be a fool not to learn from his life. Amen? And so my mom and dad, because his dad had done the same thing, he's taking the lessons his dad taught him, and he's implementing them in his life and family. My mom and dad, because of that, eventually divorced. It literally destroyed our home. I remember when I was a kid, though, I remember wanting my dad's time. I remember really wanting my dad's input. I didn't know a lot about what was going on because when you're being raised, you're just kind of in your family, right? And it's still your father. You love them. I'll never forget. My dad used to promise me all the time, Jack, one day I'm going to get you. Me and you are just going to drive down to Atlanta. We're going to watch an Atlanta great Braves baseball game. He used to promise that all the time. He used to promise it all the time. He never, never delivered. But he would promise a lot of things like that when I was little. And the time just never came. The time just never was made. Harry Chapin wrote a song. I can remember hearing it when I was a kid. And I remember the words of that song, not really understanding them. But I remember it kind of, you know, stinging and kind of going, wow, that's kind of like it was. And then I found the lyrics. Here's what Harry Chapin wrote. My child arrived just the other day talking like a new dad you know he came to the world in the usual way but there were planes to catch and bills to pay he learned to walk while I was away and he was talking for I knew it and as he grew he'd say I'm gonna be like you dad 
you know, I'm going to be like you. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. You know, we'll have a good time then. My son turned 10 just the other day. He said, thanks for the ball, Dad. Come on, let's play. Can you teach me to throw? I said, not today. I got a lot to do. He said, that's okay, and he walked away. But his smile never dimmed, and he said, I'm going to be like him. Yeah. You know, I'm going to be like him. The cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man in the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when. But we'll get together then, son. You know, we'll have a good time then. Well, he came from college just the other day. So much like a man, I just had to say, son, I'm proud of you. Could you sit for a while? He shook his head and then said with a smile, what I'd really like, Dad, is to borrow the car keys. I'll see you later. Can I have them, please? The cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon, little boy blue and the man of the moon. When you coming home, Dad? I don't know when, but we'll get together then, son. Or you know we'll have a good time then. And then Chapin, I think with great insight, as an old man wrote this next one, I've long since retired. My son's moved away. I called him up just the other day. I said, I'd like to see you if you don't mind. He said, I'd love to, Dad, if I could find the time. You see, my new job's a hassle, and the kids have the flu. But it's sure nice talking to you, Dad. It's been sure nice talking to you. And as I hung up the phone, it occurred to me, he'd grown up just like me. My boy was just like me. And the cat's in the cradle and the silver spoon. Little boy blue, man on the moon. When you coming home, son? I don't know when. We'll get together then, Dad. You know, we'll have a good time then. And so I want to warn some of you guys, as a gray-headed guy, I want to warn some of you men. Some of you young guys and some of you old guys. If we don't watch it, we can spend our whole lives earning a living, making a living. And we'll never take time to make a life. You know what our families, how our families spell love? They don't spell it L-O-V-E. They spell it T-I-M-E. Time. Time. And because of the pressures and the false value systems, guys, that we're raised with, and some of you ladies too, most, but particularly men, most men are really missing the mark when it comes to being godly fathers and husbands. We're in this series called Fixer Upper, and, and, and ladies, I'm going to get to some stuff that applies specifically to you, so guys, don't feel like I'm just getting on you. But in this passage uh, that we're talking about in Philippians 2, Paul really reveals what the heart of God is and what other people around us are when it comes to what they expect out of us. What, what Paul talks about two guys, Timothy and another messenger of his named Epaphroditus. And he says these guys knocked it out of the park when they were be, talking about being godly men. And they were marked by four key qualities that our God and our wives and others think are important. Now I want you to look at Philippians chapter 
uh, 2, verse 19 and following says, let's go ahead, I got out of line with you guys somewhere, I skipped that on my note, I usually have them a copy of my notes back there and tell them when I'm going to read through it, but Paul is writing to a church, okay, and, and he's talking to them, and he says this, now Paul is in prison, but he says, I trust in the Lord Jesus, I'm in Philippians chapter 2, verse 19, I trust, so he can't go, I trust in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, that I may also be encouraged when I know your state, your condition. For I have no one like-minded. Uh, that word literally means like-souled. S-O-U-L-D-E-D. Like our souls is, are alike. You know, not only do we think alike, we feel alike. He is like-souled. I have no one like him, like-minded, who will sincerely care for your state. For all seek their own, not the things which are of Christ, but you know of his proven character, that as a son with his father he served with me in the gospel. Therefore I hope to send him at once, as soon as I see how it goes with me. But I trust in the Lord that I myself shall also come shortly. Yet I considered it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus. Now, who is Epaphroditus? What a name, right? Epaphroditus. He's, Paul says he's my brother, my fellow worker, my fellow soldier. But he was your messenger. Now, circle that. That'll be key. And the one who has ministered to my need since he was longing for you all. And was distressed because you had heard that he was sick. Indeed, he was sick, almost unto death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore I sent him the more eagerly, that when you see him again you may rejoice, and I may be less sorrowful. Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. He should mark this. Hold such men in esteem. I think we exalt the wrong people in our society today. And many times in our homes. Why should you do that? Look at verse 30. Because for the work of Christ he came close to death. Not regarding his life. To supply what was lacking in your service toward me. Now, this is a great passage. And if you were to turn through my Bible, you would find on just about any page just some markings, stuff like that, where I've studied Scripture. And, uh, of course, I'll open it up, say, usually one or something like that, almost just randomly open it up almost everywhere because I'm reading it. Now, you open it up to the book of Leviticus, you're not going to see a lot of marks. But this passage, this page, these pages... And this book are just marked up because they are just great truths. Great truths to live by. I want to show you from this passage four key qualities, guys, that, that God, our wives, and our children think are awesome. Number one, you can write this down. It's not something we guys usually think of that we ought to try to work into our lives, but it's very true. Number one. Number one quality, men of compassion. 
You don't go to business school and get this. You don't go to four keys to success and get this. But I'm telling you, in God's eyes, this is a huge deal. In your wife's eyes, this is a huge deal. In your children's eyes, this is a huge deal. Compassion. In other words, men who are willing to trade results. Because that's what we're always focused on, right? Results for relationships. I'm willing to say, okay, results, relationships. Ah, you can have the results. I want to focus on relationships. I want a life filled with compassion. Almost every time that a couple comes to me and I'm counseling with them and they're in distress, the husband will at some point say something like this. Maybe not these exact words, but it'll be, in, it'll be the exact thoughts right down the line. Well, he'll say, I don't know why she's not, so ha- why she's not happy, Pastor. I mean... I work hard to provide a home, and she has a good car, and we have all the things that her and the kids could ever need. Now, that, that's what men will say every time they start naming the results of their efforts to provide for the family. And guys, it's good that you do that. It is great that you do that. You and I should do that. That's important. I'm not minimizing it, but I'm saying you can't put results out there over relationships. You can't say, if I'm providing the results look at the, and, the, and the, the, the stuff, why aren't they happy? You can't neglect the relationships. See, in verse 20, look at it. Paul says that Timothy was a man who actually put relationships before results. He sincerely cared about others. He put people before prophets. You don't measure a man by the value of his wealth. You measure a man by the wealth of his values. What is his order of priorities? Notice what he says in verse 20. I have no one like-minded. He says, I want to send Timothy to you because I don't have anybody like him. What made Timothy different? Here it is. Who will sincerely care for you. I don't have anybody that will sincerely care for your state, your condition. I mean, listen, like I said, kids spell love, T-I-M-E, dads. Not M-O-N-E-Y, not T-O-Y-S, not G-I-F. T.S., not gifts that you bring them home. But listen, they want time with you. They want time with that. And they want that more than anything else. One of the greatest stories of this I've ever heard of someone willing to trade results for relationships was of Representative J.C. Watts. Fox News reported this, and I went back and found it Tuesday, July 2nd, 2002, and I quote, Representative J.C. Watts, a Republican from Oklahoma, will retire at the end of this term, citing family concerns. He made the announcement official in a Monday press conference in which he said, quote, My work in the House of Representatives at this time in my life is completed. It is time to return home. He was the Republican Party's only black congressional member, and as the House GOP conference chairman, he was fourth in the GOP leadership. The article went on to say, and I quote, Watts has gotten calls from President Bush, 
cabinet-level officials and Republicans around the country who have pleaded with him to stay in office. Many have told me, he said, to stay. But all of them have told me to follow my heart and follow my conscience, and that's what I'm doing today. Now, J.C. Watts, right after that, got announced, because I, I liked him, man. He was impressive. He was a sharp, young African-American guy who had actually ascended in spite of all the blockades that were in his way. And he was on a morning news so, show just after he announced his retirement. And they, the, the newscasters, they just couldn't believe that he would leave all that power and position and money and prestige for his family just to go home. He was saying, I don't have anything planned. I don't have any agenda. Oh, sure you do now. I mean, you're right here. You're, what, you're at the threshold of, of running for president, they said. What, what are you? And you know what he said? I'll never forget his reply. They were convinced that somebody had offered him something on the side or something. He said, and I quote, I don't know what I'm going to do next. All I know is God has told me to spend more time with my family now. And then he said this. When I went to the university and played football under the uh, university of Oklahoma, he said, our coach, Barry Switzer, told us this. Execute properly, and the scoreboard will take care of itself. So all I know is I'm going home. And he said this, I'm going to work with my family, I'm going to be with my family, and I'm going to work with the youth group in my church. That's what he said. And he gave it up. Tremendous possibilities, tremendous potential. He walked away from it. But you know what he did? He walked to, away from that, to the things that really mattered, the relationships in his life. See, here's the truth, guys. People last, but prophets don't. People are going to last for all eternity, and no prophet is going to last that long. They will not do it. And it's very easy to get so busy with business that I can forget the people, the relationships in my life, my family, my wife, my friends, things like that. And so the first thing that our families want, men of compassion, men who care, really care. They don't just say they care. They really show that they care. They are willing to trade results for their relationships. The people in their lives know that they're first. They don't just hear it. They know it. Second quality, men of consistency. Men of consistency. Men who are willing to trade conformity. In other words, conforming to everything around them, all the guys, all the stuff. They're willing to trade that for true character. True character. Godly men who are not afraid to be different from the culture around them. They're not afraid to stand alone for right at what's right. I, I was so blessed recently as somebody told me about a man in this church who has a job with a lot of other men. And somebody said, you know, I've been watching that guy. He's the real deal. We got a lot of pagans there and they give him a hard time constantly. They said, that guy stands up for what he believes. And he doesn't become like everybody around him. I tell you, that blessed me. I mean, that just moved me. That's what we're talking about here. People of consistency. 
They put their character before conformity. Now, you know, they basically say, it doesn't really matter to me what you think about me. I'll do my job, but it doesn't matter what you think. I I don't care what they're doing. I don't care. I'm just going to do the right thing. That's what Paul says. Look at verse 22. He says, you know his, what, proven character. It's time-tested. It's consistent. You know his proven character. That like a son with a father, he served me in the gospel. See, Timothy, young Timothy, didn't bend to pressure. He didn't get at church and act one way and then get, get around the guys and he's acting another way. And that's hard to do sometimes for us, isn't it, guys? Is to be the same man here and there. But that's not what we're really asking anybody to do. We're just asking you and God's just asking you and God's just asking me to be the same person here, period. To just be that person. I love, there is no other person out there for us to be. Digging it? Right? Think about the the state motto of of North Carolina. You know what it is? In Latin, it, it literally means in English to be rather than to seem. That's good, isn't it? To be rather than to seem. See, if you're one way over here, and then you seem like you're one way over here with your family, guess which way you really are. And so we want to just be men who are consistent. We want our character to be proven. Uh, You know, Proverbs 10 says, A man of integrity walks securely. I mean, if that's who you are, You're not trying to put on an act here, and you're not trying to put on an act here. Just who you are. A man of integrity walks securely. Now listen to me. Listen to me, men and women. The bottom line of your life, of my life, is integrity. That's it. And there's not home integrity and bit work integrity. There's just integrity. And you either have it or you don't. And you don't have integrity in the home uh, and then lack integrity when you walk into the workspace and you can cheat people. No, 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 no. You just don't have integrity then. Because integrity is consistent. It's, it's, a, it's every... The bottom line of our lives is integrity. You know what the world says though, don't you? The world's interested in image. God's interested in integrity. Image doesn't last. Image is going to be over, gone overnight when you die. It's gone overnight in this life. Who was on the cover of a famous magazine three weeks ago? Who knows? The character lasts a lifetime. It's not image that counts. It's character. It's integrity. Now, what do the people in your life know that you, you stand for? I mean, what do they absolutely know that you stand for? If I were to go to your work and say, kind of, what does that guy stand for? What, what, is, what do you, you think about him? You think about her? What, what, are they, what are they really about, would they say? I don't know, he's a likable guy. 
I don't know, that, or, would they, would, or would they say, I'll tell you one thing, I don't agree with everything they say, but boy, that guy will not, he doesn't bend the rules. He doesn't, he doesn't cheat other people. He's consistent about this. He's truthful. He's honest. Here's what you find when you study history. You find that the people who've made the greatest impact in the world, listen to me now, for good or bad, sometimes it's bad, but there's one thing. Sometimes they weren't the smartest, the most educated. They weren't the wealthiest people. The people who have changed the world, good or bad, sometimes were the people with very deep convictions about what they believed. And they believed it, and they wouldn't alter from it, and they wouldn't change from it. And so they drove toward it, and they drove toward it, and they lived it out. So the only question is for us is, what are we going to be deeply convicted about? What are we going to be sincerely about? You know, I mean, what, who are we? So think about that. Think about that. Consistent, consistent. You have character, godly character. It's proven. And then third, third value, quality that our families want to see is commitment. I kind of leapt into it a little bit there. Got a little ahead of myself, but commitment. Here's a great, great quality that God and our family and our wives need to see in us. Men who are willing to trade comfort, personal comfort, personal ease for Christ. When this was written, as I told you, Paul was in prison in Rome. There's a church in Philippi that's decided to help him. They were taking an offering, and they're getting up some money to help pay for Paul's bills while he's in prison, because he's in prison for preaching the gospel. And there's a guy in the church, I mean, they couldn't, you know, Western Union this money into his prison account for him, so they got to physically take it there to him. He was a courier. This guy says, I'll take it. His name was Epaphroditus. Now, he's talked about Timothy. Now we're moving to Epaphroditus. And you heard him speak about him. Now, that's no small errand because it's about 800 miles between Rome and Philippi. Paul's in jail in Rome there in Philippi. And there weren't uh, boats readily available, no cars, no planes. Basically, he may get lucky and be able to ride a donkey or something like that all this way travel in a caravan, but, but the bottom line is he's got to make about an 800-mile journey, probably on foot. Now, I want to contextualize this for you. I want to put it in modern terms for you. Just imagine if this church took up an offering, and I said, uh, I need somebody to walk this offering to St. Louis, Missouri. Would you be the guy that says, Pastor, I'll do that. I'll give my life and I'll get it there. Walk to St. Louis, Missouri. Well, that's the kind of commitment we're talking about. I mean, that's a huge commitment. Epaphroditus says, I'm going to put the cause of Christ before personal comfort. I'll make the 800-mile journey on foot because this offering matters and Paul's expenses matter. But while he's on this trip, 800 miles walking, he gets sick. And I mean, he gets really, really sick. Evidently, it's a deadly disease. Look at verses 25 and 27. Paul calls him your messenger. See, he's writing back to them now. Your messenger to me, the one who ministered to my need, was what? Sick, almost. And sick, what? Almost unto death. 
serious. He says, but God had mercy on him. So when it, that word where he says he was sick, it's the same word that's used in the other parts of the Bible where people got sick and died, like Lazarus and Dorcas. And it's a deadly disease, and he nearly died. He nearly died, but he didn't choose comfort. He chose to do the will of God. I am encouraged when I think of the men and the women throughout my life that I have seen who have put the cause of Christ over their own personal comfort. I saw a man one time take his, take his retirement and he had it scheduled and he'd been working all of his life and he said, you know what, the church needs a place to worship. I'll work three more years to make a commitment to the building campaign. I saw a lady one time t- do the same thing and I would have got on her if I knew she was doing it. Sweet little lady, Miss Antha Raines, took her medicine money and gave it to the church. So the church can commit to a building campaign. This church, this church, like I said, now I don't want anybody to do that. I don't want you to have your medicine, but I'm just telling you, choosing Christ before even comfort. I did laugh that Miss Antha said, well, my doctor uh, said I didn't have but three years to live, and that was ten years ago. And she said, he's been dead seven. That's the truth. Something like that. I don't know about the seven, but she said, he's been dead for three years now or something. I was just amazed. I don't recommend you do that. I'm just saying. But this church, I hear stories about it, and I found the documents a while back. When this church was founded and had a tiny little place, I'm sure Fred Sinclair back there could tell us about it and other folks, needed its first building there, first, first large building, needed to relocate. I saw where people literally signed their homes away, put up or literally put up their homes at risk as collateral so this church would have a place to meet. Whew, that challenges me. That challenges my commitment. That challenges my comfort and my commitment to Christ. But that's what does a great work of Christ. And that's why we're talking about him and not anybody else in that church today. That's why we remember his name. Because he was a man of commitment. People respect that. They hold such a one in high esteem. Final quality and I'll quit. I thought when I started today I'd be brief, but that never seems to happen. The fourth quality that our families and that our God and our children love to see in us men is this, courage. Courage. Men who are willing to trade security, personal security, for service. It means a person who takes risks. Now listen, specifically because we're talking about the cause of Christ here. Risk. Take a risk for God's kingdom. Serving God, if you will, with almost no regard for oneself. You look at verses 29 and 30. This is where Paul says, Receive him therefore, talking about Epaphroditus, Receive him therefore in the Lord with all gladness. Hold such men in esteem because, notice this, for the work of Christ. He wasn't really doing it for Paul. He wasn't really doing it. But, but for the work of Christ, he came close to death, risking his life to supply what was lacking. It's, it's remarkable. 
And you know, he says we're to honor men like that, men who risk their lives for the sake of Christ, men who put service before personal security. That word risking there in the original language, Greek language, it's absolutely, it's literally a gambling term. It means hazarding. He's putting it at risk. It it means, we might call it, if we're playing poker, being all in, all in. Staking everything on the roll of the dice. That's, That's what this guy did. He put service, everything, before security. I read that kind of thing, and I, I really think, is my commitment to my family deep enough to cause me to risk everything? Whew, I think it is, but I don't know. I ask myself about, about Christ, is my commitment to Christ deep enough that I would just risk anything, that I would put it all on the line, I mean, would I put it all on the line? We've got to ask ourselves that because, he, listen, what matters are our families. What matter are the people around us in lives. And I don't have many, in fact, I don't have any closer relationships than my family, and I don't have any closer relationships. The next group of closest relationships I have, are you, they're you, my church family. You're the closest friends I have. I don't, I don't have any other closest friends. I mean, these are, you are my closest, closest friends. What would I risk for you? What would you risk for me? It's a good question. Would we risk our time, our reputation? Because, look, that's what matters, our friends. People, not profits. Service, not security. Hey guys, I think you'll identify with this. In 1994, at the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, it's a real story, an astonishing discovery was made. They were renovating a second floor display area, and on a wintry morning early in 1994, they were moving one of the second floor exhibits. Wendy McBlain discovered... Uh, and it was slipped underneath and between some display cases when they moved them out, an old photo and note. A black and white photo and a note were found near the World War II display. Wendy took the find to the museum's curator, Ted Spencer. She said, these must have fallen out of one of the displays. Uh, Spencer began to examine it, and uh, when he examined it, it let him believe it was not one of the at that time, 216 baseball giants who were immortalized at the museum. But as you can see from the photo above, the smiling man, uh, he had on an industrial league, like a Sinclair Industrial League baseball uniform from the 40s, uniform from the 40s, and he had a bat just kind of held over his right shoulder, and that curator immediately knew that that was not from any of the official ex- uh, exhibits. And so they were just puzzled, like, how did this picture come to be housed in the second floor exhibit at the Hall of Fame? And in 1994, it attracted a lot of attention, but a clue was found in the note. The note was written on the back of the black and white photo, and here's what it said, and I quote, You are never too tired to play catch with me. On your days off, you helped build the Little League field. You always came to watch me play. 
You were a Hall of Fame dad. I wish I could share this moment with you. Your son, Pat. A son who was now a man had found a way to put his dad in the Hall of Fame. greatest challenge men that we ever have in our lives is to live 100% fully sold out turned on for Jesus Christ and character and commitment and consistency and compassion in front displayed in front of our wives and children our business associates and our friends listen to me it's not for wimps. It's tough. It takes discipline. But the benefits are eternal. They're generational. And the ladies in here today, ladies, if you believe me, I want you to say amen to this, okay? If you, the ladies in here, they admire this in men. Am I right, ladies? You hear that, guys? That's what they need. That's what they want. Right, ladies? Amen. Only question is, are we man enough to do it? Am I man enough to do it? Let's pray. Men, the invitation is for you today. I want to encourage you today. To begin right now at this moment and not be ashamed of who you are in Christ. To begin a new journey. You may need to say today, wow, my life has been real inconsistent. <coughs> <coughs> you may need to say today and you may need to be bold and have courage. Real courage. Courage enough to stand up. And just go get the one that you love, maybe your wife, maybe your kids. Or if you're here by yourself, just do it. But come forward. But I'd ask you if your wife or kids here, just to lead them forward and say, just pray with them. And, and all you do is you pray something like this. Lord, I want to be the man that you want me to be. Lord, I pray today I recommit myself. You can do that, guys. They don't expect you to be perfect. They'll help you. They love you. They'll support you. Will you do that, guy? Will you do that? Will you be the person that God wants you to be? And will you just recommit yourself today? Father, I pray that during this type of an hour and this type of a time that you will move, that our first love will be Christ and no other, that our lives will be filled with compassion, consistency, that we'll have a courage to make it public that that will be committed men of God. In Jesus' name, amen.